Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, I recently did a podcast on the Texas blackouts. Now, what we were focusing on in that podcast were really practical solutions to these weather-related or climate-related events. And I really was going from the perspective of homeowners and businesses, not the electricity providers and equipment that really failed. But you know, it's really handy not to just read the press reports and look at things on the news and read the articles. It's really handy to get a firsthand perspective on these things. So my good friend Jeff Wolf decided to reach out to me and said, hey, you know, I can tell you about what it was really like in Texas during the blackout. Now, Jeff's a Vermont native, so he's quite used to snow and cold weather. And now he lives in Houston. So in addition to being a Texas resident, He's very familiar with what happened in the energy situation in Texas. Jeff is also the CEO of Veloce Energy. And Veloce Energy provides EV charging infrastructure to accelerate charger deployment and reduce costs. Now, we'll do more shows about that kind of application. But, you know, Jeff and I have known each other for 15 years or more. He was a longtime board member at the Solar Energy Industries Association. You know, we really made a lot of strides on tax credits and improvements over the years. But, you know, now he's in Texas and he's our man on the street to talk to us about what's going on with the Texas blackout. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, Barry. It's great to be here. Thanks for having all right, good. First, many people know you as the founder of Grow Solar, one of the pioneering solar distributors and installers based in Vermont. Now, how did you get to Texas? Yeah, my wife asked the same question. <laughs> so I had sold Grow Solar to the EDF Renewables and figured out what to do next. And found an old colleague from the solar industry was down in Houston as CFO of the largest independent retail energy company, people who sell electricity in deregulated markets, largest independent retail energy company in North America. And basically, in talking with him, he said, Jeff, we really need you. And they created a position for the senior vice president of strategy for this retail energy company. And the industry, I really didn't know. I'd been in electricity, obviously, with solar for a long time, but, but not retail energy. And so I came down to Houston to fill that role and, and create a strategy for the company, which really was involving customer engagement, and how to bring more renewables and energy efficiency in that environment to customers to help with that customer engagement and reduce the churn and drive those technologies out to the marketplace. So how did you get started with Veloce Energy? What was the path there? Well, so I did the retail energy thing for about a year, and it turns out that Just Energy's largest provider of electricity, that they were a retailer, and their wholesaler, largest wholesaler was Shell. Shell is actually a very major, a number two, number three player in the electricity wholesale markets in the U.S. overall. And so I got recruited over to be in the connected energy part of the new energies division of Shell. I did some work with the VC team there and sourced an acquisition and did some pilot projects and such. And had some fun, but, you know, Shell's an interesting company. A lot of great people there. Not the home for Jeff Wolf, the active entrepreneur. I think they frustrated me every day and I scared them every day. So I decided that I would jump out and be, be the entrepreneur I needed to be. And so left on very good terms with the team there and started what is now Veloce Energy. It was not called that then, but started what's now Veloce Energy in 2018, but got interrupted in that process when I went to be president of the Americas for Tritium, which is a global EV charger manufacturer based in Brisbane, Australia. So I came in Tritium and learned a tremendous amount about EV charging. In, in the year that I was there, did a turnaround of the America's business there, made a lot of great connections in EV charging. I met a couple of my team members, my EVP of operations, a guy put into that role, 
like I, I recruited my VP of operations, VP of sales rather. And after turning around the company, I jumped out of Tritium in December of 19 and still on great, great terms with that team as well and jumped out to try and address the problems that I was seeing at Tritium as to why we couldn't install more EV chargers faster and less expensively. And so that's really what Veloce is focused on is helping to make manufacturers like Tritium, like ABB, like BTC and others be able to sell more equipment because it can be installed faster by folks like Green Lots and EV Connect and EV Gateway and others who are out, you know, developing and designing and installing these products. And so Veloce is really we've been called the Switzerland of EV charging because we work with all the different parties to help each of them have more market success. Well, you know, it's EV charging is complicated. We're looking at all the complicated ways we could put in a bunch of EV chargers on the building that we're moving into. And I'll have a lot of questions for you as we kind of go through this. But, you know, the first question is, based on what happened in Texas a few weeks ago, do you miss the harsh Vermont winters or are the Texas winters worse? You know, weather anywhere is made okay and simple if you're given the tools to work with it, right? So if you had no winter jacket and no insulation in your house and you lived in Vermont, that'd be a tough thing. Similarly, if you had no air conditioning and you lived in Texas, it's a pretty tough thing. So what we have, you know, is a combination of where we live in Texas and we're well-equipped for the hot summers and incredibly ill-equipped for a cold winter. And, you know, cold winters don't happen much. Cold winter here is, you know, when I wake up and it's 40 degrees outside, that's really cold. So, so we, we're horribly unprepared for freezing temperatures. And, you know, we got down to 13 degrees in Houston and 6 degrees in Austin and negative 2 degrees in Dallas during this cold weather storm. Wow, wow. All right, so what did you do to prepare for these outages? I know you talked about solar and storage, but tell us a little bit about what you did, how that installation went in Texas, and how it worked when the lights went out. Well, actually, one of the things about this storm was that there was some publicity about it ahead of time. But the general populace, myself and my wife included, were pretty knowledgeable about you know, weather and, and energy and such. We weren't ready for a massive grid failure. We didn't prepare for that. We didn't go out and stock it. We didn't. We have food in the house always because we're prepared for hurricanes, but we didn't do anything different or special. So fortunately, you know, long before that, as we moved down here, Dory and I did what we always do on houses. We put solar and we put a battery in. And so we've got a, about a nine kilowatt solar array in the roof, a 10 kilowatt battery in the garage, and you know, have it set up to be backup power when we need it. We also, interestingly, have two electric cars in the garage and talk about how those were also useful in this disaster. So what happened when the power went out? Did it go out at night, during the day, the lights flicker and just not come back? How did the system perform and what well, was working? Yeah, Monday night was when it got real cold. And, you know, we had stayed up. I had been up in the middle of the night, had, you know, flushed toilets and run water and such, trying to keep the pipes from freezing. Because in Houston, in the older houses like, like ours, is from, from 1965, all the piping runs in the attic above the insulation. And we've got extra insulation in our attic and the pipes still run above the insulation. So they're exposed to the outside cold. So we had run the water and such, but not enough. You know, we woke up and my wife turned the shower on, it went drip, drip, drip. And so we immediately started to try and you know throw blankets and towels and everything else over the pipes in the attic and we eventually got the shower to run. And then you know, about nine o'clock in the morning, the power went out. And people had been out of power 
before that in different areas of the city, but the power went out here and it, it really just went bang out done and did not flicker, did not make any, any, any thoughts of coming on until, you know, 36 hours later or so for us. And so what happened was, you know, we saw the power went out and it's a little bit embarrassing, but we didn't think our heat was on our backup power system because our heat is an air handling unit, which is, does our air conditioning. And we knew that the air conditioner was not on backup power because it's too big to, for a system to handle. But it turned out that the fan was on backup power and we have gas heat in there. And so the fan came on, the gas heat came on because the controls were energized. And so we had heat from our air drilling system. And so, you know, we realized that we, we had no idea how long our battery would last. So we, you know, immediately set the thermostat down to 50 degrees, figuring 50 degrees is a lot better than 30 degrees. And, you know, started working that way. And we basically, you know, we had our computer, our laptops on, which don't take much power. I turned off my extra screen. So I just had a laptop on and had the refrigerator on and, and had a couple lights on. That was pretty much it. We had internet for a while and then the internet failed. Both internet and cell failed because they're all powered out in the neighborhoods without backup power. So one of the really distressing things about this whole situation was there was no communication. We did get weak cell phone signals. We could talk to people. It's very difficult. We did get text messages, though. They'd be delayed, but we'd get text messages. And normally in a disaster, a hurricane, bad thunderstorm, so much, we get text messages from the city of Houston you know, every 15 minutes. And then we have you know, all the different alerts you get on your phones and such. And the stark thing was we got nothing for three days. We got an alert Monday morning saying it's going to freeze tonight. The next alert we got was Thursday morning saying it's going to freeze tonight. <laughs> and then I think it was, I forget if it was Wednesday or Thursday, the water pressure started going down because some people were running their pipes a lot to stop from freezing and some people had burst pipes and power had gone out to a lot of the pumping stations that pump the water pressure. And so water was just trickling out of our faucets, which of course is a, you then get a boil water order. We, get, we did get that notice, but then you also have two other fears which going. One is most people can't flush their toilets, which is a huge sanitation problem. We had rain barrels out in the garden. My, my wife is a avid gardener. And so she had rain barrels around to collect water and we were able to use rain, rain barrel water, which is good accidental preparedness. But then the other thing is you worry about fire. Because if a fire happens, there's no way for the fire company to pump water to fight the fire. Yeah. You couldn't even call them to say there's a fire, to, to say, oh, yeah, that house is burning. Yeah, you might have been able to call them to get a signal somehow. But yeah, even if you did, they could arrive and not be able to do anything. Yeah. One of the things that's perplexing to me, we're digressing about the backup power, but one of the things is I thought that the cellular and cable services, the infrastructure, had some limited backup power. So, you know, maybe there's a battery on maybe, those things for six hours. I mean, maybe that's a good way to do it is say there's some limited backup power, but it's not on every station before. And we, like I said, we had some service. I could basically, I could hear people talk to me. And if I spoke very slowly, you could get a third of my words and I could eventually communicate with you. But, it was, you know, it was like, it was like the old 2G days of cellular, yeah. right? You know, as we go to more and more 5G, you know, there's so many 5G stations. None of them are backed up by, by anything. They're all grid power. Huh. 
That's amazing. So I understand the situation with water. What about getting food and what about getting gasoline from filling stations? So we had food and our fridge did not go off. So we, we were fine. And we had gas for cooking and we had no food issues. Most people in Houston do have a little bit of food in the home. Those of us who are fortunate enough, we did we did bring some food over to a, a family. We do that with occasionally because they had their fridge had gone off and they had no food. And that was a fairly common situation for, for those who, you know, live a little closer to the paycheck. They would lose their fridge full of food and that's a disaster. So that was a problem for many people and remains a problem for many people. And then, you know, pretty much everybody stayed off the roads because there was ice on the roads and they don't have plow trucks or sand trucks or salt trucks in Houston. And people don't have snow tires or snow tires or know how to drive. We did go out for one reason, Tuesday, about five o'clock. And this one road was all backed up. And I didn't know why. I thought maybe it was because lights weren't working, which was common. But it was because there was a big line at a gas station. Uh. I hadn't seen a line at a gas station in, you know, decades. <laughs> 1974. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and 78 was the second one, yeah. yeah. So there was a gas station that had power so they could pump. We didn't have that problem. We had our vehicles charged up to 80 or 90% before the storm, and we had enough fuel to get quite a ways. Maybe not enough to drive in the cold weather to Louisiana where they had power, because I don't know that there were any supercharger stations that were online at that point. Yeah, well, the same thing happened with Hurricane Sandy back on the East Coast in New Jersey. I mean, my family mm-hmm. had, they had a backup generator, so they had their furnace working and the thermostat and the refrigerators, but nobody could get any gasoline for like a week because the filling stations didn't have power, and so they couldn't pump the gas. I was in D.C. at a meeting and stayed over through Hurricane Sandy, which pretty much missed D.C., although I did decide to come inside when a piece of metal flew by my head. And then I drove up through kind of inland, and realized all of a sudden I needed to get gas, and <laughs> all the gas stations are closed. And I finally found gas at the Montville rest area. On the, the Garden State Parkway, just south of the on New the York border. Parkway, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and waited in a 45-minute line or whatever to get gas, because that was it. I needed to get gas. Wow, wow. All right, so how did your friends and neighbors kind of get by? How did they thrive or, or suffer, and what kind of changes are they making to their house? Several of our near neighbors had janitors. One put a cord from their neighbor's generator over to their house and, and was able to you know get a couple of heaters going that way. Neighbor across the street had a small portable generator that they would run once in a while to bring some heat into the house. There's about 600 homes in our subdivision, and I know that at least three of them, based upon the piles of debris on their lawns now, had frozen pipes that they're now tearing out significant pieces of the house because of oh, wow. Uh, I don't know how many houses had more minor damage. We froze our irrigation sprinkler backflip event, so we've got to replace that. That's a pretty minor thing in the scheme of things. But I think a lot of people had, you know, minor frozen pipes. But even if it was just the three houses in our subdivision, that's half a percent of the homes. That's a lot of homes in Houston. Yeah. And that's really expensive because it's the piping, it's the sheetrock, it's the painting, it's the damage inside from the water. It's a real mess. Yeah, it's not quite as bad as hurricane flood, but it's pretty close. And the difference between a hurricane flood is that, you know, this requires plumbers and there's, you know, there's never enough plumbers in good times. <laughs> so one of the good things that the state did, one of the few good things the state has done is, is they've actually said, even if your license expired in the last three years, you can do plumbing now. And they're expediting the approval of people coming in from other states to do plumbing for a period of time. Yeah. All right. That sounds cool. All right. So 
From your local on-the-spot experience and technical understanding, what were the major causes of the blackouts? Well, at a fundamental level, you had cold weather, colder than plants were designed to operate at in Texas. And so you had freezing instrument air control lines. That means you can't control parts of the plant. And you had freezing water valves that would you know, shut off critical water flows to different parts of the plant. You had freezing gas pipelines. Things would freeze in the gas pipeline and stop their operation. And then you had freezing the gas wellheads themselves. I'm not sure how that works, but, but apparently gas wellheads, if they're not winterized, can, can freeze. And then as this all begins to escalate, and as plants begin to go offline, as we start reducing the amount of power available, we had record, if we hadn't had any blackouts, it would have been record peak demand for any winter day ever by 15%. So our peak winter record, I think, was 55 gigawatts, and we would have hit over 70 gigawatts. Wow. So, which is, you know, close to summer peak, you know, which is unheard of. So as we started dropping generation, they started dropping load, and some of the load they dropped, because it wasn't designated as critical infrastructure, was the gas compressor plants, which moved the gas along the pipelines. And so as natural gas-fired power plants went offline, they started to further restrict the availability of natural gas to other power plants, which then dropped offline. And so you had a bit of an escalation of plants going offline on the natural gas side. On the coal side, oddly enough, coal piles increase. And up north, you know, they're equipped with all kinds of hackers and breakers and chisels and saws and all kinds of amazing stuff to, to break coal piles apart in Texas or not. And so the coal piles froze and they couldn't get coal fast enough from the pile to the burner. And then we had one nuclear plant trip. Texas does not have a lot of nuclear. I think they've got near only four plants. One of the reactors tripped due to a frozen water valve. It tripped something off and bang, down it went. You hear a lot in the early news about wind power causing the problem, which is an absolute, complete misstatement. So first is that ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, who controls the grid operations, they forecast how much power is going to be available from each resource, particularly wind and solar, based upon the weather forecasts, which have gotten you know very good. And they've become very good at forecasting how much power will be available. Some of the wind turbines froze up, and they're just like on natural gas plants. There are ways to winterize natural gas plants and have them work in you know far northern Canada. There are also ways to winterize wind turbines because they also work in far northern Canada. But those wind turbines were not winterized either. So some wind turbines were unavailable, but the wind fleet in Texas still produced more power at the critical moment of time than ERCOT had forecast to provide. So I think it was about six gigawatts of wind that ERCOT had forecast would be provided. And wind was consistently providing about a gigawatt over that. Now people will say, but wind has, I think it's 18 gigawatt or 25 gigawatt of nameplate capacity. And it was only providing seven gigawatts. Well, that's true. Well, it does have that nameplate, but ERCOT forecast is what matters. 
and ERCOT always forecasts much lower in the wintertime because our winds in Texas are not uh, strong in the wintertime. And so what matters here is what the natural gas generation expectation forecast was and what it actually did. What the wind generation forecast was and what it actually did. So wind overperformed its forecast. Natural gas was under its forecast by 50%, 30 gigawatts of natural gas generation. All right. How about solar? How much solar capacity was available and how was that affected? So the core of the crisis, the worst moments, the worst minutes of the crisis from a power systems point of view were in the depths of the night. So obviously solar was forecast to produce nothing and it produced nothing. During the days after that one night, which was Monday night, solar actually was well above its forecast. And then for your system at your home, did the battery charge up again in the morning and when you, you know, you kind of had as much electricity as you needed during the day? So the power went out Tuesday morning. Wednesday was gray and cloudy. So we got, you know, maybe half a kilowatt hour of generation on mm-hmm. Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So our battery had to take us from Tuesday whenever the power went out, you know, 9 or 11 or something, through the night, through all day Wednesday, through the night into Thursday morning. And it did. And we have a system that allows us to look at the battery through the internet. And we had no internet. We couldn't look at it. So we had to text our daughter in South Carolina to please go to the internet, look at our battery, and tell us what it's doing. Right, right. There's no display. But how is the battery transmitting? Because it goes, it it transmits over the internet too. So I guess it was able to transmit out at a low bandwidth. Well, I guess at a low bandwidth and the the right signals and such. I mean, we could text out, right? in low bandwidth, and it must be, you know, very low bandwidth, I assume, and used to see in intermittency, it would just push the data out, and, you know, it may not have been up-to-the-minute data, but it was up-to-the-hour data. Right. So you had your daughter say, how's the battery doing? So what was the lowest state of charge that your battery got to? Do you happen to know? I don't think we went below 30%, which is, which we were really surprised at. We were surprised at how little fan unit used. That's good. They don't use that much. It's a few hundred watts when it's running. It's not running the whole time. Yeah, so. yeah. And, and we, we turned the temperature way down, so it didn't run as much. Right? Yeah, yeah. And refrigerators don't use much at all anymore. Yeah, yeah. If I can just remember the thing, an interesting use of Teslas and lease that emerged during this whole thing is people who didn't have a backup power system in the house but had an electric car that was charged up. Some of them used it as a refuge. Their house would get down to 30 degrees, but they would go to their car and this one couple wrote about it that they were in the car for three nights and had it on camp mode at 65 degrees and it used about 17% of the battery. And you could do that with an internal combustion car, but you would wake up dead. Right. Exactly. Even if the garage door is open, you might wake up dead because the extreme is going to accumulate. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, at some point, maybe we'll be able to do the vehicle to grid, but that's a topic right. for, you know, another show. But those are big batteries sitting yeah. in everybody's driveway in the garage. Yeah. All right. So you had a good solution for your home. What are some potential solutions for Texas as a whole to deal with this more severe weather that we're getting as a result of climate change? It's obviously a really complex question. You know, the old school thinking would be, well, we simply need to winterize all the plants. It does cost quite a bit of money to winterize these plants, and the market design in Texas has not provided sufficient reward for that. And I don't know that 
Texans are willing to change their so-called free markets to do that. But winterizing the plants can work. I mean, gas plants and wind plants and coal plants operate in northern climes much colder than Texas. So that is functionally possible. We also had transmission failures because the transmission lines got ice-coated and they weren't designed for it. And, you know, the idea of replacing transmission lines is really expensive. So we're probably not going to do that. So it once again leads us to the idea that the way you create a more resilient energy grid is to decentralize it. And this is true for the cold weather we just had. It's true for hurricanes. It's true for the incessant thunder, lightning, tornadoes, hailstorms, et cetera, that we get in Texas increasingly. And so, you know, we really need to work to decentralize the energy grid. And you know, there's a couple of interesting numbers I just want to throw into the conversation. One is the U.S. spends $387 billion a year to buy electricity. Texas spent on the wholesale market. That's wholesale price. Texas spent in five days $50 billion. Wow. So to say that we can't afford something, you know, for $50 billion, we could have built, I don't know, 30 gigawatts of solar plus storage, which would have done an awful lot to <laughs> mitigate problems, or wind plus storage or some combination thereof, right? Probably could have built more than that because it would have earned revenue as well. People say you can't store enough energy in batteries to power the grid. If we converted the vehicles in Texas to electric, we could store the entire Texas grid course, it's like two days in the vehicle batteries. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I read an article in Texas Tribune that was talking about, you know, what happened during the last blackout 10 years ago, uh, 2011. Had similar weather, maybe not as cold, but there was a demand, a request, and, and what the solution was for the power plants to weatherize themselves. They should be weatherized. But it wasn't a requirement. And obviously, 10 years later, none of the power generating plants actually did that. So the weatherization solution is one that's intuitive, keep the incumbent energy systems going. But unless it's mandated, these companies are trying to make a profit, and they're not going to spend well, a bunch of money to do it. Yeah, increasingly, there'll be less and less of a solution because you get more and more systemic problems from the greater weather. You know, Comparing the 2011 to 2021 storms, the... 2011 storm, Houston got to like, I think it was, I'm going to remember here, but like 24 degrees rather than 13 degrees in an Austin yep. that got yeah. to say, say 14 degrees and six and then Dallas, something similar. But, and it also lasted about a third of the time. The duration was not nearly as long. Austin had 162 hours below freezing in this storm. You know, the other storm had 40 hours. And that kind of thing makes a big difference as to, you know, how much you need to winterize something to make it survive. Yeah, yeah. If we start saying that these things are going to get worse and worse and worse, well, you can't winterize to the last storm. Yeah, looking at what the Texas Railroad Commission is thinking about doing, this is a quote, we don't want to mandate weatherization. We don't want to mandate elaborate emergency plans. We're going to let industry self-regulate. This was uh, Representative Eddie Lucio. Of course, the Railroad Commission, just despite their name, they are the oil and gas regulator. Right. It's the Public Utilities Commission, which regulates the entire electric generation industry. Re regulates being a loose word. So it looks like 
good solutions are to you know make sure the grid is more distributed. But on the other hand, there's just so many incumbent business interests at the Texas Railroad Commission, ERCOT, the PUC, to kind of keep the fossil fuels flowing and just hope that it doesn't get cold again. So where yeah, is this really going to end up? It's a perfect storm a little bit of desire for no regulation in ideological level, not a result level. Incumbent interests, oil, gas, electric generation side, a lack of ideological-driven politicians who won't consult with experts to determine what should happen here. So they drive ideology rather than driving you know, sound policy. Right, but also uh, their income comes from donations from the fossil fuel industry, so their policy is dictated by what their business interests want. I mean, the business interests are so strong for fossil fuels well, in Texas. That, that's, that's all true, but, you know, refineries, the Gulf Coast shut down because it was an unexpected blackout. They blacked out. They didn't have any time to prepare. And when you shut down a refinery that way, it takes weeks to come back. Yeah, yeah. Weeks, because they freeze all kinds of different kinds of liquids in different places. They've got discharge. It's a mess. Yep. Well, crude oil isn't a liquid when it's down to 10 degrees. Right. Nor are any of the byproducts that they, you know, crack and slit and break along the way. They may be open to (laughs) some changes because it's costing them, I don't know, you know, the the business losses in this are are staggering. And even some of the generators, one of the major generating companies in Texas to generate about a 30% of the power during this blackout. They did their job. They kept their plants on as much as possible. And, of course, they have to pay whatever for gas at that point because of the way their contracts are. They lost $1.2 billion. Yeah. It's not a good business model. So what about Texas connecting to the east and west grids? Is that going to happen? You know, I think it's pretty easy to do it. Um, and I think that Texas could actually benefit economically fantastically. Because what we would do then is we could dramatically overbuild our wind and overbuild our solar. We have great wind and great solar resources and, and pretty inexpensive land and inexpensive permitting. And so we could dramatically overbuild that and export energy. Just way for oil and gas now, we could export the electricity. So I think it would be a tremendous economic boon to the state to do it. I fear we're going to spend billions of dollars to prop up what exists in the way that exists and more billions to, to make sure that we have a heavy blanket over our head to ignore it all. Yeah. My inclination is based on what happened in California with the blackouts and the fires over years and years and years and the actions that we're taking now. I mean, every year we hear we're going to get this solved. We're going to have backup power. We're going to have microgrids. We're going to trim the trees. And every year for the last three years, we've had similar problems. I don't see them getting significantly better. But just for context, as horrible as your problems were in California, the Texas blackout disaster dwarfs the economic scale of everything that's happened in California in the last five years towards it from an energy point of view. The $50 billion spent on electricity, economic damages, the insurable economic damages will surpass Harvey, which was Texas's biggest natural disaster up to this point in time. Yeah. And neither of those count the business losses and business bankruptcies and business interruptions. Yeah, this is a $100 billion, $100 billion disaster. Yeah, and it could very likely happen again in fewer than 10 years. So yep. kind of circling back, what what do homeowners and businesses do to try and avoid this next thing? You know, it might be, a, it might be I don't know, an earthquake. It could be another flood. It could be another hurricane. Mm-hmm. It could be another cold snap. What can people do to 
maintain that reliability that they need for their homes and businesses. Yeah, you know, it starts with the simplest things. You now know how exposed we are to water. And it's a little easier for homeowners to have access to, to a backyard or whatever. You know, keeping a rain barrel for water. Really cheap and easy to do and connected to a gutter and it, and it self-fills and self-drains and it's great. That's pretty easy. You know, having some backup way to cook, right? either your outdoor grill that you should keep outdoors, but gas grill, make sure, make sure the gas bottles are full and such like that. Keeping your normal hurricane supplies on hand like we do. You know, it starts getting harder when you, you get into heating and such. And so, oddly, the cheapest thing to do might be to buy a used Nissan Leaf. And that becomes your refuge for both heat and cold when there's no power. But the next thing you do, obviously, is you put a solar system and battery on your house. And you try and size that battery and understand, and like we did, understand what your heating system is and how long you can run it and what that takes. And maybe do an efficiency upgrade on the heating system as well to try and, and tie the whole system together. We'll certainly be doing some additional upgrades on our house to make it work better as a refuge and an arc because you know we've, we've now realized just how exposed and how alone we are in Texas in terms of you know keeping ourselves safe and warm and fed. It's harder for those in apartments, you know, be they high-end apartments or, or, or not high-end apartments, it's harder for those folks to figure out how to be resilient there. Real, real, real difficult options. So you had that experience. You have a 10 kilowatt hour battery, nine kilowatts of solar on the roof. It was cloudy for a couple of days. Can't generate a lot of power. Would you put another battery in? Would you kind of beef that up in your own system? Yeah, we're definitely planning on putting another battery in. We're going to look at changing the gas heat to a heat pump because the gas is not really reliable either. We happen to not go out for us, which is good, but there is concern that the gas can go out in this kind of situation as well. So I don't know if we'll do it or not, but we'll look at putting a heat pump in. Uh, we may look at putting in a small heat pump just to do a, a room or two as kind of an emergency backup system. You'll need yeah. a bigger battery for that, obviously. But, right. I mean, we've had great experience in our house. We've got two batteries, and we've got you know a 12-kilowatt system. And the, the tricky thing about the heat pumps is you need to get one that's very efficient with a variable speed compressor. And yeah. if you do that, yeah. then, you know, you can just have one room going if it's zoned or two rooms and the thing's not really cranking. Right. And then, you know, they literally sit power. I mean, it uses like 500 watts. It's almost nothing. Which is yeah, you close, you close the house and you just do a few hundred square feet and you make a shelter in a shelter. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, so, I mean, that that's kind of the obvious thing. I mean, it works for you. It's not that expensive. You can finance the thing and still you'll end up with positive cash flow. So it's definitely going to be the trend. And I just see how slowly California's moved. And, you know, as you mentioned, because it's such an ideological thing of Texas being energy independent and their legislature only meets every other year, it's going to take a long time before they really solve some of these big problems. Well, you know, Texas... Does only meet every year, but you know it's like every other legislature. They have study committees, and they work during the when they're not in session officially. They just can't pass bills, right? Mm-hmm. So if we had an actual non-ideological desire to make something important happen, Texans can make it happen. You know, Texans absolutely have the ability. I mean, look, Texans did figure out how to deregulate, and that was not all that long a process. And you can say it's bad or good, but it was you know pretty darn innovative at the time. And it was a huge lift legislatively, but they got done. So Texans can do big things in energy when they want to. It's just a question of creating that want. I, I think it's while, while we value individual resilience, you know, electricity has become kind of a societal provided good. 
So we want to all chip in, and it's a lot cheaper if we can kind of do it together. And so, you know, the idea of putting, rather than more batteries out of a house, which doesn't work so well for apartment dwellers, putting more batteries distributed around the grid to support the grid better at its different locations, you know, I think is one step we should be looking at. And then putting more distributed solar and more distributed wind, even. I don't mean small wind, but I mean big wind. But don't put it all in West Texas. Put some in Corpus Christi. Put some on the Houston, the, the Gulf Coast of Houston. But we have different wind regimes that operate at different times and co-mingle and, and, and really support each other. So we can get more wind at more times of the day and more times of the year into the grid. So it's really distributing everything out more is what will provide so much more resilience to the whole system and will trickle down, if we do it right, trickle down to the homeowner level. Yeah, the challenge is there's so much of a fossil fuel energy mentality in Texas that it's going to take a while to get over that. I still remember, uh, heck, it might have been a dozen years ago, we had there was SPI in Austin, and I had a Go Solar sticker on my suitcase, and I checked the luggage in Austin, and I couldn't find my bag when I got to San Francisco because it was a black bag, and I was looking for a big orange sticker. And somebody in Texas had peeled off the sticker that, that said Go Solar. And so it's an attitude thing, too. It's going to take, it's going to take time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, things maybe are beginning to change. You know, you've got quite a new stance from both BP and Shell. You know, which are trying to move faster than they were even two years ago into a more of an electric paradigm. So that's helpful. You've got even some of the American oil companies are, are under quite a bit of pressure to move. So we're beginning to see that that could begin to, to tip a little bit. But you're right, until that really tips and they start to lead the charge. It's a hard uphill battle. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you and your family did okay. I'm sure there's thousands of other Texans who did okay. And as the equipment gets weatherized and more people put in solar and batteries and even, you know, propane generators, the next time it hopefully won't be as bad. All right. Time we have. Yep. That's the goal. That's where we're going to be. All right. Thanks, Jeff. That's all the time we have on this week's energy show. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.